what am I doing wrong that after all this effort, this is what my wife experiences. It forced me to sit down and recalibrate, reframe how I viewed this aspect of my life and the way it was apparently interfering with other aspects of my life, especially my marriage. Welcome to Hope to Recharge podcast. Thank you for joining me here again today. Every week we meet here to break the stigma around mental health and to bring you insight and inspiration and lots of practical tips from personal stories or professionals around the world that share how they turn their journey of mental health into healing or to thriving. Together we will break the stigma one story at a time. And mental health together is always better. Thank you for joining me here today. I'm your host, Matana. Let's get started. Do you ever find yourself feeling like you're not really seen in your relationship? Like you're just living with a roommate and life is just one endless checklist. If you do, then please stay a bit longer. My name is Igor Meisselman and I'm a certified MAGO relationship facilitator. I went on this journey myself with my wife and it took us from a place of roommates, checklists, to incredibly close friends and spouses. You see, the journey of a relationship requires tools and deep work to uncover the true connection that all spouses crave. Mago Relationship Therapy is a very unique form of therapy that gives you the tools necessary to create safety in a relationship and then to navigate towards the deeper things that we all crave in our relationships, which is to see and to be seen, to connect in an authentic and real way. I invite you to check out relationshipreimagined.com for more information and for free session to yourself could experience the magic of what a model could do for you and your relationship. Hope you enjoy this part one of a two-part series with Igor. Igor is a lawyer that practices family law for couples that are filing for divorce. They come to him when they say, we are ready to get divorced. And you know what Igor says? One moment. Have you tried Imago therapy? Why does a lawyer decide to take on another part to his life and become a relationship coach with Imago therapy? Fascinating person, an amazing human being. And this two-part series is a life-changing episode for the world. I'm so excited about this conversation. I learned so much about it. You will hear from my passion in this conversation how enthusiastic I am about Imago Therapy for the world. So enjoy part one. And in the next few weeks, we are going to release part two that we'll be discussing a little bit more in detail what Imago Therapy is and how can we actually apply it in our relationships. Enjoy this episode. Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining me here again. Today, I have a very exciting conversation, a conversation that I'm going to be learning because when it comes to relationships, I'm obsessed with understanding the psychology behind what works and what doesn't work. And in the history of my life, there were so many relationships that were toxic, not healthy. I look back at my marriage. We just celebrated our 20th anniversary two weeks ago. And I look back and I feel was I the same person? I'm different. My husband's different. And I'm so grateful that we are different. So today I have Igor. Igor is really a lawyer that practices family law and some real estate law. And he's going to explain to us why they come hand in hand. And then a successful lawyer that was involved with many divorces decided to take a little turn and continue with law, but add to it a little bit more and become 
a relationship coach with the Imago Therapy Theory. And I want to hear all about it because I've been hearing about Imago Therapy through, I think, in the last five years. I heard the concept and then I once listened to an interview, I think, by the founders. And it was in the back of my mind. And I said, this sounds like a very interesting theory, but is it only theory? Does it really work? First of all, before I give you the mic, Igor, I want to just say that when I heard about you, I said, this guy is unique. Most lawyers are sharks. They get into that room, they get into that court and they're like, what can we get? How much can we build a client? How much can we tell the client that they can get from the opposite side, whoever they're coming against? And Igor is the opposite. Igor is like, how much peace can we bring to this pain? How much can we reduce their stress of financial bills? It's okay if I give my time, even though I can bill much more, but I'll be kind. Very unique. I am telling you, I've spoken to so many people that got divorced and one of their pains is struggling through the lawyers and the mediation and the bills. And you are, as I say in Hebrew, a malach, an angel. And no wonder you went into imago therapy because you decided it's not about the money. Yes, money, we need energy, we need money, but it's really about peace. So I'm going to give you the mic now and introduce yourself. Tell us how you got into law and how many years you're practicing law. You moved states, your your wife, and then we're going to deep dive into Imago. Okay, great. First of all, thank you so much for having me. You just made it really exciting for me too. <laughs> I'll just try to hit the highlights and I'll leave for you to ask anywhere you want to zoom in. So I graduated law school in 2009. I actually met my wife in law school and we got married while we were still in law school together. We graduated together. She practices, I call it peaceful law. She does patent law and trademarks. So she deals with happy customers <laughs> as opposed to me. Uh, Exciting customers because yeah. they're oh, in the man. beginning of the journey. We're going to make millions. Yeah. yeah, that's right. That's right. Especially when you mentioned energy, I'm thinking like the people she sees come with so much energy, positive energy, creative <laughs> yeah. energy. People I come see are sapped of any energy. Yeah. Uh, just trying to survive. And so I've been practicing since it's so about 12 years going on 13 years. It really wasn't so much by choice. I fell into family law. My At my first law firm, my, my boss just said, I have a friend going through divorce, I need you to go cover a court appearance. Mm. I had no clue what I was getting into. But when I went to court, something just striked me. I saw these families sitting in the waiting area before they call you into the courtroom. And I just picked up, it was like in the air. I picked up this tension that was there. Maybe there's just part of my personality. I have a sensitive predisposition. And I just picked up, there was like something in this place is very different than when I walk into the regular Supreme Court where people are fighting over money and partnerships and real estate. There was just something more human and real in this courthouse. And then I wound up dealing with this client for about a year. And just the more I was involved in, the more my vision started shaping in front of me that I want to be dealing with families. I want to help figure out how do we deal with conflict in family units, as opposed to all the other areas of law that I was practicing in that firm. And that just put me in a trajectory of dealing with families and taking on as a specialty divorces, child support, custodies, and that entire arena. Now, fast forward approximately five years, and my wife, approached me and she said she's tired of going to restaurants and doing all the typical things we do all the time. She wanted something different. I said, what would you like to do? She said she wants to go to a couples therapist. Did you always go on dates? Was it something usual for you or was it only like on a birthday anniversary celebration? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say somewhere in between. We were definitely not regular 
once a month, we allocated some real focused time together. The rest of the time, I'm going to speculate like most of the families just on the fly trying to survive. I was in the thick of, of my career. I also started a firm two years before that. I went off on my own. And so I was really just drowning. Surviving. In the, yeah, total survival, entrepreneurial mode. I was like, no, honey, you got to give me a few years to try wow. to get this off ground. Wow. And then he, here's my wife coming over and saying, I want to go to couples therapist. Wow. <laughs> so anyways, so I said to her, you know, is something wrong? And she said, no, I just want to do something different. Would you mind? I said, no, why not? I'm overall open person. I'm about tshuva. I didn't grow up religious. I went to yeshiva that was very musar oriented. It was a very personal growth oriented hashkafas. For people that don't understand the Hebrew to normalology, can you elaborate on that? Yeah, sure. sure. So I studied in, in Jerusalem for two years in a post-college type of education system where uh, a lot of emphasis was on Talmudic study but as well, a very big mix of things related to something called Musr, which is things of personal development nature. Like self-growth, right? Self-growth, how to work on character traits, how to improve flaws in oneself. And one of the things that in that school that was emphasized a lot was how to show up in your marriage, how to be a spouse. Yeah, absolutely. There was a, in the first year, they gave classes on how to date. And in the second year, they gave classes on marriage. Which yeshiva is that? It's called Machon Shlomo. Oh, no wonder. (laughs) We call it, it's in Harnof where I grew up. Know, and yes. my parent, we always had Machon Shlomo guys come over for meals. And my parents really? used to call it the Ivy League Yeshiva. Yeah, yeah. And anybody God. from Machon Shlomo was a A student. Brilliant, yes. go-getter, very high standards. <laughs> like they were, they were yearning for truth, not just education. They were yearning for truth. So there were lawyers, doctors, bankers. Okay, yeah. now I understand. Rabbi Gershenfeld, right? Rabbi Gershenfeld, that's my Rebbe. Yes. Yeah, wow. Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Later on, maybe we'll mention him. He's the one who made a big push for me to pursue doing relationship coaching. So what wound up happening was I decided to go with my wife on this date. Somebody made a recommendation. We went somewhere in Hampstead, Long Island. And unbeknownst to me at that time, we were going to somebody who specialized in this thing called Imago therapy. I never heard of Imago therapy. I heard of concept of couples counseling. I was doing the divorce side of it. That concept was not surprising, but this thing called Imago, I never heard of. And we went for this first session and Mm -hmm. I have to tell you, I know it's it's a little spooky, but that first session we walked out, I said, Leora, we have to come back. No way! As the male. As the male, as the lawyer. (laughs) Are you a personality? You sound like an A personality. Very, right? (laughs) Wow! Wow! Russian, Russian. (laughs) exactly. Where did you grow up? I'm actually from Kiev, Ukraine. Oh, wow. Can you believe it? I grew up working with Russians in the com- in the high tech world. I-, I don't want to stigmatize, but there was a very little emotion. It was very practical. It's no very one cared if there was a deadline. There was a deadline, and they didn't care if you were after birth, if you were with cancer or whatever. You get the job done. That's right. Brilliant people, brilliant yes. talented people, but there's not so much emotion. So I'm surprised. No. So what was different about you? It's going to be two things. The first thing. Is I, I think I had a slightly more sensitive nature than an average Russian person. I came to America, I was 11 years old. I made a lot of the, the typical circle of friends was pretty much other immigrant families. And I agree with you, that was the typical pedigree, very cerebral, very cut off from emotions. And I always had a little bit more of a sensitive nature. I, I was able to appreciate emotional things. By the time like I was in college, even though I wasn't religious yet, I would enjoy like a romantic comedy type of a movie. 
that would be oh, my really? leaning as a movie of choice. But the truth is only till Imago Journey that I connected very deeply to what later I'll explore with you probably something called the lost self. Mm-hmm. This idea of certain things in us are lost especially during childhood formation, based on things that we missed out on when we were children. And what Imago did for me is it allowed me to reconnect and re-experience those lost parts. And ultimately, and this is a part of the kind of mission statement of Imago, is to find your lost self and to reintegrate the lost self into your present life. And as my wife and I continued doing that work, which wound up being a saga of five years, of five years we gave up Pesach vacations there was no traveling every dollar was available was babysitter imago and yogurt afterwards to walk around and process our feelings <laughs> wait I have so many <laughs> questions okay you gotta slow down a little bit because I, I need context first of all how long were you married for at that point we got married in 2000 seven so this is seven years into our marriage how many kids we just had our third child okay so your wife is exhausted yearning for connection you're a busy man trying to make ends meet and pay yeshiva tuition and the mortgage or whatever and trying your best and she's is she practicing law part-time but yeah she is but obviously mostly with family so she was like she was in between the two worlds of motherhood, entrepreneurship, like legal. And what did you ask her, Leora? Why now? We're going to touch on something very deep. Just warning you. Let's go. We like deep. Okay. I love learning. I love Torah. I made a choice to live this life. And my learning the Bible. Yes. And my learning schedule is this is the Russian part. I wake up very early in the morning at very unusual hours. But those are the time that I chose to allocate to my learning. And I wanted to do that way so I would not interfere with my obligations to my family, my children, my wife. But one morning I came home. And my wife, who grew up religious and who always was very proud of the fact that I made time to learn and wanting to always grow and become a better person. One and morning, was taught to look, to, was to, to be proud of it and mm-hmm, to be mm-hmm, the wife that supports mm-hmm, it. Precisely. And then one morning I came home and I saw she had this a bit of a sour, sad face. Wow. And she said to me, this is the first time I resent your learning. <gasps> or was it the first time she's recognizing the resentment? Could, could be. You're right. Wow. Could be. And I remember I just felt like Mike Tyson punched me in the stomach. Oh my gosh. I wake up at these crazy hours to for her to be proud, for our children to be proud of me and to hear that from my wife. And I remember I paused. I didn't feel upset at her. I wasn't angry. I just paused and I said, what am I doing wrong that after all this effort, this is what my wife experiences. It forced me to very much sit down and recalibrate, reframe how I viewed this aspect of my life and the way it was apparently interfering with other aspects of my life, especially my marriage. And when I sat down with my wife and we slowly began to process and explore this issue, one of the things that came up for her is I was low on energy. It was fifth coffee by noon. And because I'm waking up, you know, this crazy hours. And when all is said and done, I checked off boxes of performing certain things in my life, but that did not amount to deep, meaningful connection with my wife. I think you're the only Russian that would say that. Seriously. (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) Do you like your, if you had good friends that are Russian, they would probably laugh at you and say, Igor, come on, probably even man up. What's the big deal? This is what it is. This is life. Don't be so sensitive. Igor is nodding his head. You don't see he's nodding his head. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) <laughs> Some of them absolutely do. 
And some were actually very inspired when I later on would share our journey. And when people would ask me about how I work on my marriage and what do I do to make things better. And again, I personally subscribe to genuine openness to always be in a place of asking the following question. What does God want from me now? Do you sometimes feel stuck? Do you wish you can be somewhere else? Do you have a vision of where you want to get to, but you just don't know what the first step to take in order to get to that life that you're dreaming of? How did I shift from deep depression, from extreme anxiety to a thriving life, to a productive life, to a life full of joy? I put many things into practice and it's every single day. Many of you know that it's gratitude, a healthy mindset, boundaries, self-love, and one of the most important things that many people don't speak about self-forgiveness and forgiveness to others essential for healing if you want to work one-on-one with me on these topics in order to move forward towards that dream life that you have a vision of click the link below in the show notes it's a custom made program for you one-on-one with me we will develop a concrete program that you can implement in your life so you can create a better well-being click the link wow wow that's true that's truth truth. that's not learning just in order to check off learning that's living what you're learned how many people actually do that unfortunately not many not many wow what does god want for me right now so when my wife said those words i paused and i said i thought it was learning but i see now it's to love my wife Now God wants me to love my wife. And so I had to reset the whole learning schedule and the way my work schedule ran and make sure that there was energy available to properly make time for our marriage and then make time for our children. That's where a big shift happened. And and by the way, just I want to be very clear that people shouldn't look away like I'm some sort of angel. I I want you to know (laughs) inside inside my mind, as I asked that question, there was another voice. I wanted to ask you that. I wanted to ask, how was it not your knee-jerk reaction to say, wait, you married me asking me to learn. You knew what I wanted. It's not like I changed. You knew that this is my passion. We dated. We spoke about it. You grew up looking for that. How am I at fault? Because I'm doing what we decided I'm going to do. And how is that not your knee-jerk reaction? And on top of that, your cultural background of not being so like mushy and Mm -hmm. okay, man Mm -hmm. is a man. They work, they come back. They like, how did you not answer with a zap? What do you want from me? I'm doing what we made up. I'm going to do. Mm -hmm. So that's why I wanted to share that. I think one big mistake people make, and you mentioned earlier about this idea of being a A type personality, alpha male, cerebral, very calculating. I think that very often just gets in the way of understanding what the truth is of how to serve God in that moment. Because if it's black and white, then the questions you were just posing for many people become very valid. And you should know that now in the work I do as a relationship coach, there's so many times I hear precisely those claims. Mm-hmm. You married me like this. That's one of the most like favorite cards. People, yeah, people love pulling that out of the pocket. You yeah. knew this before we walked down the aisle. You right. knew it. Right. And I sit there, I'm like, are you really this black and white? Is it? Re-? And that's kind of part of the journey to realize that we are very multifaceted. And the fact that I, in part, felt resentment towards my wife when she said that. And in part, loved her dearly and wanted to connect to her 
is not in some way indication that there is a flaw, that we're broken. It's an indication of a perfectly healthy, functional human being. The question is, what do we do with all these feelings? Which ones do we listen to? Which ones do we just acknowledge, but we don't you know, bow to or worse, enslave ourselves to? And my mind was telling me that the truth of the situation, which is my relationship having a preeminent role in my life, for sure overrides any other consideration, including learning. How did I know that? Because that's what I learned from my Rebbe. That's so what I, I wanted had, to ask you. Who was so the I mentor? Had, had a, if you like, if yeah. you don't have right mentors, it's no. very hard. I, if you said you went to Mahon Shlomo, you had yeah. Rabbi Orlowick. Rabbi Orlowick is our rabbi. Really? He married us off. We don't do anything wow. without. Yeah, I had to meet him before I dated my husband. Very special. Very, very special. special. And he taught. And people say to me, "How is Ari so intuitive and willing to change with you?" I said, "Because he had Rabbi Orlowick. He didn't have parents. He had a horrible upbringing and." He had no role models, but he had Rabbi Orlick. Who was your role model? Rabbi Gershavald. Oh, really? Now, happens to be I had them both. Rabbi right. Orlick came once a week to teach, right. and Rabbi Gershavald taught every day. And I want you to know that Rabbi Orlick, for me, he's literally the second person. When I was in Yeshiva, that is who I went to with questions. And even now, like we had him come out to Phoenix, where I live now, here, right before COVID, the whole community basically raised money to have him fly out for a scholar in residence. Yeah. It was an incredible experience. I immediately came over and asked Rabbi, can I please have 30 minutes, anything? Can I please have 30 minutes of your time? It's, of course, it's it's one of those things you cannot spend your life and not try to, you know, have 10 minutes with a person like that. Like He's it's an giant. honor. It's an honor. Yes. And my husband, like it says, he quotes him till today, like in different, well, I say to him, like, Ari, how did you have the courage to do that? He said, Rabbi Orlick taught me that, Rabbi Orlick. And it's, and but without mentors, it's really hard to get there, right? It is very, it is very hard. And what I'm also finding is precisely because I, my clientele, both in, in practicing law and in doing now relationship coaching for about three years, I find most of my clientele is Orthodox Jews. And I find that, Many times people just lack education as to what marriage is supposed to look like yes. and what parenting is supposed to look like. Yes. And in those categories, when they spill over into extreme conflict, and that's where I'm brought in wearing the attorney hat rather than the relationship coach hat, I just, I feel like I've seen the, the spectrum of every aspect of what it goes on in an Orthodox Jewish world. One of the major pieces that it boils down to for me is there's such a big lack of education in these arenas. People simply don't know how to navigate them. You know how many times a couple comes in and says, okay, we're ready to get divorced. We just want to hire you. Just give us the retainer. We want to hire you. Please right. mediate the divorce. My first question always is, have you gone to couples therapy? Before you did it, Mago? Yeah, I, I asked the couple, have you gone to couples therapy? No, but I'm saying before you started, before you learned about Imago, you used to ask that when you were a first yes. lawyer? You know why? That was more of a call it sociological, anthropological curiosity. I was always mm -hmm. just curious. What did you guys do before it gone nuclear? And when I then became fully immersed in Imago and I saw how much value it brought to the table and I began to integrate the tools of Imago, even in mediation sessions, when couples were getting divorced, I started adding the following interesting question. I would say, have you gone to couples therapy? And they would say, yeah, we've gone to couples and nothing works. So then I would say, have you gone to Imago? Oh. And, they say, and they say, no. What is say, Imago? <laughs> and I would yeah. say, you haven't gone to couples therapy. <laughs> because it's all about learning the communication. That's right.
it's all about learning what the other person like how to communicate and how to express and how to hold space for the other person's pain or desire or understanding or to say you know what I'm programmed a certain way my partner's programmed another way everybody comes with their traumas with their backgrounds with their beliefs with their and how can we make space for somebody else without seeing them as an enemy? But saying, like you said originally, I asked, you asked yourself, I need to, how can I make it right for her, the love of my life? She is my love of my life without feeling that I'm wrong. Because yeah. what do I really want? I want a happy marriage. Do I want to be right or do I want to be in a happy marriage? What do I really want? And it really feels like an attack when somebody says to you, you're doing the better X, Y, Z, where you're used to doing it. And you're like, wait, where's that coming from? Why are you attacking me? So yeah. it takes such courage. And I think that day when she said that to you and you, you accepted it so fast, that's courage. That is courage. Thank you. I really appreciate you saying that because what's funny, as I'm listening to you say it, I didn't see it that way. That's probably the, the Russian part of me. I tend to minimize for myself the things I do. I tend to shrug off accomplishments. Wow. That's pro and that's probably tied more to like my own childhood wounds. And my my rabbi, my rabbis always used to say to me how uh, that's like such a Russian thing. You could never take compliments don't exist in Russia. Yeah. Why is that? <laughs> right. So that, that's a deeper conversation about how the culture is wired. Yeah. And that culture, by the way, creates what I call a social childhood wounds in other words mm -hmm. we in the mago world when as a couple we usually talk about wounds on individual level but there's also such a concept as social trauma when the whole society exactly. is basically traumatized and you know what they do they live it out as a legacy they pass down to their children and their children pass down to their children with what, pride there, there's definitely pride but it's i would call it protective pride meaning it's not because we want to be proud. It's because we don't know how to be anything else. And so we have to do it this way. And I can tell you, that's why my parents, for example, anytime they've come to visit and stayed with our family and they watch the way my wife and I parent, they go bananas. They so can't like you're so lenient. Absolutely. Uh, why Absolutely. are you not strict? Seven o'clock is seven o'clock. Why do you let them tell you what to do? Why? That's right. right. That's right. And I'm sitting there telling you, I look at my father and I'll be like, but dad, I'm just trying to hold space for my kids. Yeah. And he doesn't <laughs> and even father, understand what that means. He, look, he looks at me as you're a lunatic. Hold space. Look at this child. He's being disrespectful. And I look at it, I go, wow, look at these generational gaps that I've created. Or do I like to look at it as I've healed by taking one little step towards changing myself and recognizing what went wrong for me and how I want to rewrite that story for my mm -hmm. future generations. Wow. wow. Are you an only child? No, I'm actually a fraternal twins. I have a sister. She's 10 minutes younger than me. Oh, wow. And where does she live? <laughs> she lives in Brooklyn. Is she Orthodox? She's not. I'm the only religious one in our family. And was that a trauma for your family that you became religious and you lost your mind? The first couple of weeks were deep trauma. My mother actually hung up the phone on me when I told her that I was in Israel I told her I was going on a summer trip. And then I told her that I'm going to stay for a year. Mm -hmm. She hung up the phone. And for three days, I called and she would hang up the phone. She <gasps> speak to me. Now you have to understand, my mother will oh my die. God. My mother would die for me. There's no question about there it. There was deep so, love. It wasn't, you knew there was deep love from her. And but it was rejection now. 
Oh, and those three days were some of my most painful memories of my entire life. I literally could not reach her. I called and she would hang up. It was very painful. And then finally, my father picked up the phone on the fourth day. And he finally said, when you're ready, come back and then we'll talk. Come back so he, to our culture. Come, come back to and, New York. When you oh, oh. come back to New York, let us know and then we'll, we'll talk. So he acted a little bit as a, as a stopgap stop measure while my mother recuperated. If you would meet my mother today, oh my gosh, if she had her way, she would live in our house. So she's so proud of you now. She's oh, proud. The, we are, and you know what the irony is? The connection that I feel with my parents today, I sincerely believe I would not be this close if I was not religious. Mm-hmm. We're, we're so close and so many things I've learned about how to respect parents. How, how, what's my role? How am I supposed to show up to my parents because of what I've learned in the life I live today? If you met me when I was 22, oh my goodness, <laughs> wild man. Oh, Really? <laughs> Even oh, though in the Russian it. culture, there's very much respect and there's very yeah, much sure. like I'm the yeah. father, I'm you listen to me, you respect me. There's definitely a hierarchical structure, mm-hmm. but I just mean within my personal life, my parents were, it's one of these, he's so smart. What's going to be with him though? I'm coming home five in the morning. I lived a typical secular life. I was in college. I had straight A's, but my social life was out of control. Wow. <laughs> and wow. and my, my parents, my Mother staying up till six in the morning when I come home, like typical uh, right. teenager post, you know, post high school kid. You could have told me twenty years from now, here's where I'll be, a father right. with six kids. Wow. Do you believe that all Russians are very smart because the culture is pushed them to use the brain that they have versus do the best you can and slack off? Because there's no, as you say, there's no mercy. Mercy. The, right? There's no mercy by Russians. You work hard and you succeed. Yeah. Do you think it's it's that so many Russians are so successful and smart because they were pushed to their limits? I think that when you cut out major part of emotional connection to oneself, the brain can go into high gear. And so what I find is that in my own just interactions with other people from former Soviet Union and just growing up in that environment, I definitely found that we were just pushed to such limits cerebrally Mm -hmm. that you just see a production of a a more, what this is the part of what appears like a more intellectual or cerebrally wired human being. The problem is it came at a big price. The typical Russian is very cerebrally wired and therefore can process a lot of information, can be analytical, but ultimately very often, very emotionally detached from themselves and therefore from others. And so when you interact with Russian people, right? That's what, there's a reason why you don't see crying. You don't see emotional connection. Now, till this day, when I get on the phone call with my father, let's say he asks me only factual questions. I, I split into two categories. There's factual questions and there's questions attempting to connect to another human being. How was your day? Not bad. Okay. Did you experience anything? Yeah, I struggle with this and this. That's an emotional connection. If I just say to you, is there food in the fridge? Yes. Are all the bills paid? Sure. Kids are healthy? Yeah. Okay. We'll speak next week. <laughs> where, where, where's the connection? Right. Where, where, Dad, do you want to know anything about my life? that's like the typical paradigm of a Russian person. And if you ask them, where's your emotion? Like what's going on? Yeah, where is it? It's almost like they're going to tell you, I don't know. Do you want to help me find it? Do they know even what an emotion is? So that's not what I found. Russian people who I've met who are emotional are those that made the effort to experience emotion, connect to emotion, 
or this even just discover emotion. That's what I found. Those who do not, they just simply live out almost like a robotic life. Like here's what and I they're do. They're not even aware that they're missing something, right? There's no awareness. Yeah. yeah, very well said. I think that first part, not aware that they're missing something. And that's the killer part because how do you tell somebody you're missing something if they say, what do you mean? My life is just find the way it is. Right. Why are you creating a problem? Do you and imagine what, this? But, you but in a, a way they're right. You know how they say ignorance is yeah. bliss? Yes, yes. I was just true. speaking to somebody from the very, very Orthodox community, very extremely from the Hasidic, Hasidic community. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And there was something very bliss in her ignorance. And I'm like, wow, it's such a simple life. Yeah. Because yeah, there's no way. awareness of what she what is out there and yeah. what she make she may have if she knew. And she was so happy. And what there's nothing wrong with that when we talk about let's say spiritual life based on simplicity. And it doesn't it does not need to be complicated. But when we talk about uh, a culture and society mm-hmm. that its purpose was designed to train and program people for productivity and not for connection. People were programmed for productivity. That was the entire Soviet Union model. The whole mm-hmm. approach was, we just need you all to produce. You're just a cog in the wheel. You're not a human being who could be creative, vibrant, revolutionary, accomplishing, breaking new barriers. That was like, you will be viewed as like the enemy of the state. Your job is to hear, you're given this little box, you live in this box and you perform in that box. And when you're old, you could pat yourself on the back and say, I did what the state wanted of me. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that's just so counter to, I think, what human being was meant to do, what God had in mind, which is for us to express full potential, full range of our potentials of who we are as human beings. So when you married Leora, the differences, the gap differences between the culture, first of all, she grew up Orthodox. You didn't. She was American. You're Russian. You're male. She's female. Like the gap was enormous. I got one more for you. I'm Ashkenazi. She's Sephardi. Oh, God, heaven. (laughs) (laughs) But in a way you did well, because at least she was a Sephardi wife, because they there's like this nurture is a they're very nurturing. So you won there. You really won there. (laughs) Wow. So how long did it take to be able to have this conversation before you got to Imago, before this five year or seven year, seven year marriage, then you went into five year learning, practicing on yourself, not even learning get to to practice that you were learning it on yourself like literally in like in-house so did you ever have conversations on the cultural gap on the on the differences between your perspective of what a relationship should be was there a discussion is there something that's preventing you from achieving your goals or interfering with your happiness Maybe it's anxiety or stress. BetterHelp.com will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. And you can start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line and it's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online with a broad range of expertise available depending on what you need and the services available for clients worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and send messages to your counselor. BetterHelp.com is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches. They make it easy and free to change your counselors if you need to. And it's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. BetterHelp.com wants you to start living a happier life today. So visit BetterHelp.com slash hope to recharge. That's BetterHelp. 
BetterHelp.com slash Hope to Recharge and join over a million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. You'll also get 10% off your first month. Once again, that's BetterHelp.com slash Hope to Recharge. You're talking about before marriage, during the marriage? From day one of marriage to Limago. Yes. During those first seven years before Imago came into our lives, we actually hit a few tension points around culture of where I come from. And particularly, there were certain things really had to do with my mother. There were just certain ways that my mother would show up in our lives, if you will. The reason I'm comfortable sharing this is because today we all as a family laugh about it. Mm-hmm. Because we, just, we, we all grew around this topic. But I want to share because I've seen it so many times in my work that I've done. In-laws could play an enormous stressor, could impose an enormous stressor on the life of a couple. And when you talk about Orthodox world where families are such tight-knit communities, basically, the extended family is like a community. And you have to know how to navigate that community before you even get into the broader community of non-relatives. And so what happened is there were a few times that the way my mother basically showed up, my wife felt very uncomfortable. And she confided in me. And I think the first, either one or two times, I basically looked at her like a deer in the headlights. Like, what are you, I don't get it. What are you, you know, exactly what you said about not even being aware that there is a problem. So I just stood there. I I really don't know what you mean. What are you referring to? And then she sat me down and says, I need you to understand that, let's say this is uncomfortable for me, or this is not okay with me. And as I processed that and just gave it awareness and gave it focus, I started saying, wait a second. Okay. My wife's telling me something doesn't sit well with her. And I have to decide if I'm going to either respect and provide for the comfort she's asking, or try to figure out if there's something unreasonable about it, or, you know, that she needs to reconsider her position. And so we, we kept going back and forth about it. And I realized that she was within her right to bring up the issue she brought up. And I then told her that I'm going to speak to my parents. I'm going to tell them that there are certain things that they need to be able to respect. Boundaries um, that you're yeah, setting boundaries. for your family. Yes. And you know what? In, in our family, that was example of a rupture because that was a very hard thing for my mother to listen to. Because you're Uh, the son, how dare you tell the mother what to do? Absolutely, absolutely. And how could you? And that's not how we raised. Every guilt in the book was brought out. Wow. And and to go back again to having mentors, I immediately went back to the playbook. And I said to myself, what did Rabbi Gershaw teach us? And one of the things that we learned is marriage first. Parents will never come before your spouse. That, that, that is our number one rule. And in fact- He stressed he, that a lot. And stressed that a lot. With kibbut aim, with res- honor your mother and your father. So, like so, how does it at work? Like oh, the balance work. You're going to love this. So, uh, so it's very complicated. Of course, how to set the balance because there's so many scenarios. If you look up in the last laws of dealing with the topic of honoring parents, the, the last commentary by the Ramah, who is the most famous commentary on the Shulchan Aruch, he there brings down that if you're dating someone and you're not sure what you want to do and your parents are telling you, you should get married to this person. The, the Ramah writes, you have no chiyuv, you have no obligation of kivarav aim. Only who's the best match for you. Hmm. If you feel this person is not for you, there's no mitzvah to listen to your parents. And from there, Rabbi Gershaw brings for us all sorts of sources and, and explains how you have to understand that when you form a family unit, 
right? Isha Gufo, your one unit, that unit supersedes the parents. So what does that look like? Obviously, when your parents are near you and you're with them, you owe them all sorts of respect. No question about it. But not if they ask something that somehow interferes with your Shalom Bayit. If it interferes with your family life, peace at home, peace at home has to come first because that's the foundational floor. If the foundational floor is going to crack, the rest of the building is going to come down eventually. And by the way, that's what I watch all the time. And if you look up, last time I checked, I think it was a couple of years ago. I don't know how much COVID had an impact, but if you look up top five or top 10, anybody can Google top five, top 10 reasons for divorce in America. I wanted to ask you that. What's the most common divorce by when you see in your practice? Right. So usually it's inability to communicate with each other. That's usually my number one. And by the way, that sounds on the surface as in that's it. You couldn't talk. So you got divorced. What I mean by that sentence, there's so much to unpack. Underneath that sentence, what I mean is, and from inability to communicate, they developed toxicity and tension and eventually couldn't coexist anymore. Resentment, pain, disconnection. Absolutely. Because when you don't speak properly and when you don't communicate properly, you're not heard. And when you're not heard, you're alone. You feel invalidated. And that's the foundation of a relationship. So I want to bring Imago into here for a second. So let's say you came as a couple to yourself to see you and you're like, oh, my wife is American. She's asking me to do something very uncomfortable. I don't understand what her issue is with my mother. This is normal for me. Does my mother have to give up herself for my wife's comfort? Do I have to set boundaries with my mother when I don't have issues with my mother? How do we break this down in Imago? Because it happens all the time. Who's right? And it's based on emotion. So so let's take this classic example that you brought of yourself. So pretend you are doing therapy on yourself way back. Yeah. Before I, I set the stage for the answer, I just want to make a certain contrast that will be very helpful. See, many times in what I call, let's say, traditional therapy, couples therapy, what would happen is the therapist would almost assume a role of authority. So in other words, if I came with my wife to me, for a session, and I am the traditional couples therapist, I would go ahead and actually tell them what I believe is the correct thing to do. For example, if my personal belief is your spouse comes first before your parents, I would say, look, your spouse comes first before your parents. And maybe we could talk about how do you feel about that and what's preventing you from recognizing that. And that would be basically the approach. But what happened in the Mago is me, the, the facilitator, my role is very much neutralized because the Mago therapy believes first and foremost is the answers of what is the right thing to do lies inside of all of us. The only question is, are we able to get past the layers of pain, hurt, trauma to get to that true answer? If the couple comes in and complain to me, look, his mother's constantly interfering in our marriage and she's doing all these types of things and she's creating tension. The conversation for me would shift into, okay, I'm going to ask, I would tell the husband, okay, I want you to mirror. That's one of the fundamental things of Imago is mirroring, which is basically repeating back what you're hearing the other person say. And I would tell him, okay, can you please mirror what you're hearing your spouse say? And then we would go back and forth just mirroring because I want to gauge to see how much does each spouse actually has a finger on pulse of their spouse. And you'll be shocked how often, because people operate from their brain and not from emotion, how much they actually don't really know what their spouse is truly going through. 
Wow. They have a conception in their mind. Oh, yeah, my wife, she gets irritated when my mother comes around. Yeah, you know, it's, it's been for years. That's how people talk. And I would stop and I'll tell that client, have you ever wondered what does it feel like to be your wife in those moments? Or what do you mean? Well, what are you talking about? No, have you ever wondered what would it be like to step into the shoes of my spouse, to touch their world? Have you ever experienced that? No, that's what I'm going to help here facilitate for you. Now, what's what the magic part is not that facilitation. The magic is when spouses genuinely leave their own worlds and cross over what seems like an a infinite divide into the world of their spouse, that's when all the shifts begin to happen. I don't have to convince that couple that, hey, you need to tell your mother to back off and protect the marriage. When he's going to touch her world and see what that pain looks like, a normal human being will say, wow, until now, I didn't appreciate what it's like for you in our marriage, in these situations. And now that I got to see it with my own senses, you know what? I realize now maybe something needs to shift. Maybe I wasn't as sensitive as I should be. But those shifts inside of us do not happen until we're able to leave our own world and enter the world of the other. And that's what Imago does. It facilitates that type of encounter with your spouse. Most couples live out transactional relationships. What I mean by that is you went to work. I prepared the dinner. You picked up the kids. I cleaned the house. It's always a transaction. And we don't pause and say, do I know what it's like to be my spouse? And does my spouse know what it's like to be me? And exactly what you said a few minutes ago, that feeling of I'm really alone. I live out this life many ways in isolation and nobody really sees me. They see an image they want to see of me. They see what they would like to see, but nobody sees me. And you know what? People suffer in silence and they really do. And that's how we like, and I'll tell you that the, the deception is so bad. I don't want to be too much of a critic of the Orthodox world, but I could tell you from the trenches, doing this for all these years, people go to this thing called Kiddush and they shake hands on Saturday morning after the prayer service while everybody's doing L'chaim and everybody's smiling. And I'm one of those unfortunate people who gets to then see them in my office where they tell the truth. And it was not all smiles and it's not all happiness. And in their homes in private, they're suffering and their struggles and there's pain, but nobody gets to see it. Because all we get to see is the cover-up of all the smiles when we get together at social occasions. Can I add to that? You hit on something that I discussed with my husband last week. But be- before, I- remind me, I want to get back to the kiddush because sure. I want to validate that to a, de- a personal degree. I'm very yeah. open. My audience knows that I share everything, the good, the bad, the ugly, the shameful. We share everything yeah. and we grow. That's what we are. As I said, yeah. we're 20 years and thank God I'm not the same person I was. Thank God. And I believe that the, my mental health crash brought me to this awareness, if not for my depression and anxiety and learning of about positive psychology and what Pirkei Avot teaches us, which I never really internalized and all these self-help books taught me because I needed to, Mm -hmm. I would be the same miserable, programmed, automatic, expecting person. I think Esther Perel talks about it in her books about the what what marriage used to be. And now we have an expectation. There's a me, there's a us, there's Mm -hmm. love. Love is different. It's not about only surviving like you spoke about before. It's not about the practical, the carpool, the cooking, the clean, Mm -hmm. the bills. There's more with the us, the now, the present, the, the cultivating that relationship 
with the holding space. But I want to ask you a question about Imago. I find in my relationship often that my husband would say to, it's more the opposite. I'm the complainer. I'm the one that <laughs> it's the opposite. But I'll give you an example from the, the get-go. I grew up in a family that sarcasm was fun. As was like my father was, he's very funny and sarcasm was never hurtful. And as soon as we got married, I think within a first week or two, Ari's like, you can't be sarcastic. That's hurting me. And I could not understand what he was talking about. For me, sarcasm is a joke. For your sarcasm is a hurt. I'm going to go into his shoes and I'm going to say, I don't even understand what you're talking about. So how do we use that mirror when our culture <laughs> gap is so different and I can't comprehend what's hurtful about it? His mother left him when he was nine. I will never understand what it's like for a mother to leave a child. I will never because I never had that. So how do we go there when we can't? And how do we hold space for something that's so far for us to comprehend? Right. I want to be clear. When we talk about the journey of this, you know, this traversing from one world into the other, it's not that we can never fully experience the range of an emotion of somebody else's experience that we never had. If my parents were married when I was a kid, there's no way I could feel the full range of emotion of a child of a divorced home. Right. Absolutely. But there is a reason why God did grant us ability to do something called empathy. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to share with you a very fundamental rule that I actually learned from also from one of my teachers when I was in Israel. There's a difference between sympathy and empathy. Right. People love using these words interchangeably, mm -hmm. but there's a, a very important fundamental difference. Sympathy is my need for your problem to go away. Think Wait, about this. Say that again. My, my need for your problem to go away. In other words, I it's will listen to you. It's too painful for me to hear your pain. That's so right. I need to fix it. Very good. I need to fix it or I'll do anything to make your problem go away. But it's not because I'm vested in you. It's not because I see the value of who you are or what you're dealing with. And I want to be helpful to you. I just want this to go away. So you, you, the way you show up for me is you'll be like, uh, okay, what do you need? Let, let's just get this resolved. What's the problem here? Versus empathy. Empathy is my choice to share in your distress. I might never know what fully it feels like to be you. But you know what? If I see, even say those words from a place of sincere feelings that I'm able to touch within myself, how soothing does it feel to the recipient? It's incredible. And there's a reason why, right? The Torah says that what comes from the heart enters the heart. There's a reason why these concepts exist is because there's certain ability of call it energy transfer. There's a way that people can bind and connect to each other that creates soothing emotions, comforting emotions. That's why we love talking to each other. Shlomo Melech, King Solomon is, used to say in Proverbs that when a person has something heavy on their mind, it's very important to talk it out, get it out of your system. That's where therapy is very much validated that, as a vehicle for that. When your husband says, okay, I don't like the sarcasm. This doesn't work for me. So instead of saying, look, I, I can never understand what it was like for him. Instead, what would happen to Mago is we would pose certain exploratory questions to help expand both of you. So for example, we would say, can you share with me? I would have you ask your husband, let's say, can you share with me what comes up for you when I show up in a sarcastic way? Let's say he tells you, it irks me. What I'm hearing you say that it irks you when I'm sarcastic. Is that what it's like for you? Yeah, that is what it's like for me. Is there anything else that comes up for you? No, that's it. And can you tell me what is the story you tell yourself when I'm sarcastic? And you see where we would essentially open a back door into his inner world. Mm. And what, what winds up happening is the more that opens, 
the more you are going to begin to get insight into a world that otherwise was limited to simply, oh, my husband doesn't like sarcasm. Now your husband is a whole world. Oh my gosh, behind that one comment of no sarcasm, there actually lived this huge history of life that boils down to, for some reason, not liking sarcasm. Mm -hmm. But the more I understand that world and I can access it, the more I can start training within myself sensitivity, awareness, understanding of why my husband needs what he needs, or better understanding of why I can help him understand that when I do these things, it's not meant to be hurtful. Down. It's not personalizing. It's not mocking. Right. It's playful. That's right. And by the way, it goes the other way, because what I would wind up asking you in the session is when he tells you not to be sarcastic, what comes up for you? And very often the answer people will give is, I feel so stifled. I feel like they're trying to control me. And that's exactly where relationship heads that very critical moment. Are we going to heal through this together by discovering more about each other? Or is this going to become a point of contention and we're just stuck in what we call an imago power struggle? In the imago, in the imago world, all, every romantic relationship goes through three phases. Mm-hmm. Everybody, no exceptions. It's Everyone. Through- Everybody, there's no exception except stage three. You only get there if you do the work. Stage one and stage two are unavoidable. Stage one is what we call romantic love. That's the honeymoon phase. Every honeymoon infatuation. phase. Infatuation. Infatuation. Absolutely. Everything's Butters more. in the stomach. Yeah. They don't see the red flags. Everything's okay. Yeah, it's emotionally, chemically induced. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Dopamine hits very often. Yeah, yeah. Then every relationship moves to something we call power struggle. There's no relationship that avoids a power struggle. There's somewhere oh. in every relationship. And I love when a couple comes, oh, Igor, we're doing great. We're doing great. So, so how come you're here? Yeah. <laughs> I love when couples tell me, that, we're doing great. And then I'm telling you, within one or two sessions, I see exactly where the power struggles lie. So why'd they but, come if they're doing great? Oh, this thing came up and we were just trying to figure out how to just get resolved and move on. And by the way, fascinating enough, those couples that say that, Notice the way I even described it. They totally try to keep even the Mago as a transactional process. Oh, yeah, we have this problem. I want to go on vacation. She doesn't. And I'm like, yeah, that's, I'm sure that's not really why you're here. If you can't work out a vacation, you're not working out some other major deeper problems. Wow. So, so that's why it's so important that in the Mago, it's always dual. It takes two to tango. So, I would always wind up bouncing around and asking for each side, what comes up for you? What comes up for you? What's the story you tell yourself when he shows up this way? What's the story that you tell yourself when he shows up that way? And then finally, those who get in power struggle, either sadly wind up in my office because they want to get divorced because they've had it with the power struggle, or you can go on the journey like Imago and eventually arrive in a place called true love. And the reason why true true love true love and the reason it's called true love is when we were able to go face the demons together and smite them and experience that genuine unity and connection in which it's us together versus us versus each other say that again it's just way too beautiful like it's so beautiful you feel like it's cliche it is and i'm only able to say this because that's what where i emerged about three years into our own journey. Okay, so say that again. You can move from power struggle to true love if you face the demons together through this, the tools and the techniques that Omaga offers. And what comes out on the other side is deep, meaningful connection 
where it's not us versus each other. It's us together taking it on the world. It's not me versus you and who's right and who's more. It's how, but there has to be two that are very open-minded and willing to look at themselves, what they need to fix and their past behaviors and be open-minded for change. How many couples have both that are willing to work and not one that says you either you come or we get divorced and it's very hard to find two very mindful, willing to fight people, right? Close. I'm about to surprise you. And I love this metaphor. I either read it in the in Harville Hendricks' book, that's the founder of Imago Therapy, or uh, maybe heard from one of his presentations. Think of a couple dancing. If you imagine a couple dancing, right? In a dance, you are locked into each other. If one takes the wrong step, the dance, so to speak, breaks. And so when one partner makes a step, the other has to move in with them in kind, right? That is essential in order to successfully, you know, navigate through a dance. Otherwise, you you will not be able to dance. You'll just trip up on each other. Imago believes that a couple in a relationship is engaged in a dance. If one partner says to themselves, this relationship is not in a good place, I want to make a change. Again, provided you can get your partner through the door, obviously, to come to a session. But if even one is what I call willing participant, they could begin to shift the dance. And if they shift that dance properly with Imago tools, you will get your partner to shift with you. Really? Yes. So there's a process of change. Is there really like an opening, a softening of a heart, a change of a mindset? That's right. Even right. after 30, 40 years of being a certain person, there's Absolutely. something an open, like a clarity. I like, you know how they say that Adam and Eve suddenly realized that they were naked, that there was like, oh yeah. my God. Yeah. So is it that spark? Even on very strong-minded humans that are like very detached? Because you know what? is a vulnerable human being wishing to be seen. And the reason people 30 years into their marriages become cemented into this is it. That's how I am. That's not their essence speaking. That's the exterior shell trained itself to survive Mm -hmm. because for too long I was not seen. And so I've conditioned myself to only show up this way. And that's why in Imago, we have one of the other tools is called the safety dialogue. This is something that I have couples who've come for eight, nine sessions just to work on safety. Now you would say to yourself, safety? Are you kidding? A hundred percent safety. What I hear all the time with my clients, I can't say that to him. I can't say that to her. There's no way. If I say that, he divorces me tomorrow. If I tell her that, she'll Mm -hmm. never look at me. I'm not saying that. And I'm like, what kind of relationship is it when you're walking on eggshells? I'm not talking on borderline eggshells, mm-hmm. uh, like like sensitive souls. And we really, sometimes we need to be really sensitive. But an average relationship, we should feel safe to express without being attacked or punished or consequenced and be able to, be, to share vulnerably. So why is it that we hear so often, there is no way I'm saying that? It's, it's amazing that you're so sensitive to this point. I tell people sometimes they, they almost, first of all, they don't want to believe it. Mm-hmm. And, and again, back to in choosing to look the other way to almost not even acknowledge that it might be going on in my own life. Can I tell you how often I will speak to even potential couples, couple reach out to me, they want to work with me, we'll, ha- we'll set up a discovery call or a session. And I'll usually give them some flavor of a mago just so they could see what it's like. It never ceases to amaze me how one of the partners will basically, like, yeah, but this one, we really don't have to deal with. 
and I'll purposely watch the face of the other spouse while rolling their eyes. I'll either see, I'll see eyes rolling. I'll see some kind of, and in my head, I'm like, interesting. You know, and it's just, it's really amazing. People live together and there is a semblance of of happiness. And again, I don't want the, the, the listeners to think I believe that most people are gloomy and depressed. That's not the case. There, there are beautiful marriages and vibrant families. There, they really are. But the reality is that I, I will I can quote Robert Gershifeld. I hope he won't kill me for this. He always broke it down like this. And I've doing this now for 12 years, believe it's pretty, pretty close. I'm even going to say a little worse than he does. He believes that. There are about 10% marriages that are extraordinary, amazing marriages. There are 10 marriages that basically should have never been, 10% that should have never been, and they're just terrible. And then there's 80% that are mediocre, meaning they just live out their lives and everybody does their checklists and there's a Shabbos and they go to celebrations and they go out for dinner together while looking down at their phones, pretending they're on a date. Right, all all these things are they're, they're all around us. You can just look around as you walk down the street, and because no one taught say, them, because no one taught yeah, them for sure. But the point is, he would always say to me, it, "I'm always worried about the eighty percent. That those are the ones that I lose sleep over, because they live out these mediocre lives without realizing they could have had special marriages." I agree. But that's the challenge of can I recognize. Or can I carve out time for, wait, my, my spouse doesn't talk to me about certain things. Could it be because I never made it safe? Or is it as simple as, oh, it's just never significant? Yeah, I, I once, uh, a wife once called me up. She was very interested. Somebody recommended she, she called me up. And after almost an hour of back and forth, she's like, this is amazing. I'm sold. And what does she end with? I don't think I'll ever get my husband to come. Exactly. When we hung up that phone, I was filled with sadness because I said to myself, gosh, you're in your 30s. How do you live out the rest of your life with someone who's not going to be willing to do any work with you? So you know what's going to happen? Like the other 80%, I'm going to settle for mediocrity. I'll say I'm happy with what I have. Or I love this line, at least we're not fighting. And I'm sitting like, this is so painful. You're literally going to live out a life of private agony, of secret agony. Yes. And that goes on all the time. And that's why I always say, just get them to come to one session. One session. It needs to be free. I'll give it to you for free. Come for one session. Because you're Igor, the giving guy. (laughs) (laughs) But Because you want people to live with joy. You want people to live with joy. And the potion, you went through it and you understand it. If only people were taught this like driving lessons. Everybody needs to get driving lessons before they get into the car and drive alone. But no one is given like proper lessons of how to live a fulfilled connection, loving life. Unfortunately, it's only after like things start falling apart that they go to therapy. Some people, some are starting to go before marriage. It's become because divorce is becoming such a big, unfortunately, more than 50% of divorce. So people are like, okay, fine. Maybe we should learn about relationships before we get married. But the truth is that until you get married, you really don't understand 
the struggles yeah. that are going to yeah. come up. So some, Absolutely. so sometimes you can Absolutely. learn in theory. I regret in my own personal marriage, I regret that I never was taught. I thought I was the best communicator. I thought we have conversations five, five hours, six hours. When we were dating, we had deep, meaningful conversations, analyzing. I'm like, okay, we have what it takes to analyze what Eric said to us before we got engaged. He's, you know why you're going to do, you're going to be great because you fight so often and you know how to resolve it. So at least when you get married, it won't be a shock to you because you fought right. so much beforehand. Right. You have the tools, but you know what? I didn't have the tools. I didn't, ha I had the tools of analyzing my pain. I didn't have the tools of listening and understanding his pain, seeing his perspective. It never dawned on me that I need to go to his side. It was all about me and all about me being right. And this is the way a marriage should be. And this is the way a husband should be. And I'm neglected and I'm sad. And I, I, until I learned, and I still have a long way to go, trust me, a long way to go. But at least I'm aware when I fall, I'm aware. Oh my God, that was not nice. The way I spoke, that was harsh. That was mean. That was below the belt, which in the previous, past and I'm going to bring in the Kiddush now. I'm going to give you an example. It was about two weeks ago. We were supposed to celebrate the 20th anniversary in Israel and unfortunately his, my husband's passport got lost by FedEx. Hashem, God didn't want us to be there for some reason. Mm -hmm. I don't know why. God didn't want us to be there for our 20th anniversary and that's okay. We're, we came so long in life that we realized that it's fine. And we were analyzing how different I was and I said, do you remember Ari how miserable I used to be? I used to go to shul and I had three little Little kids at home and you took our oldest one for like half of the davening and then you would come home like an hour after shul because you hung out with your friends in kiddush and i didn't like going to synagogue i i was very much a home person and and i used to say if you loved me wouldn't you come home right after and i used to attack him instead of saying ari i really want you to come home and spend time with me and i'm lonely and i want to do shabbos together not after you were an hour in shul and i was with three kids alone on Shabbos day, but I would really rebuke him versus express what I wanted. And then there was a resentment and he felt, oh my gosh, I'm the bad husband. So there was a disconnect. Okay, so we left you a little bit hanging and we will be releasing part two in the next few weeks and we will be deep diving into the hows of Imago and how it can transform our relationships, transform ourselves and heal us from maybe a very toxic relationship or from an unhealthy relationship. Stay tuned to part two. Bye till next time. Thank you for listening till the end. We highly appreciate all of our listeners. And Mental Health Together is better. You being here means a tremendous amount to us. If you enjoyed this episode and you would like some extra boost of information and inspiration that is not on the podcast, you can go to our website, hopetorecharge.com. There's some premium content that for the cost of a cup of coffee, you can download some amazing information that will help you, a tool that will guide you through life. So don't skip a beat. Don't hesitate. Go to hopetorecharge.com and see what other offerings we have there for your mental health well-being. Thank you for joining us. And remember, if you enjoyed this and you want to say thank you, the best way of gratitude will be by you leaving a review or a comment or sharing this with a loved one. There is no greater form of gratitude for us. Thank you. Bye till next time.